Chapter 44 of The Goddess of Atvatbar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. The News of Atvatbar in the Outer World. The kingdom of Atvatbar lay before us like a continent drawn upon a map, or rather upon the interior surface of a sphere or globe, everywhere visible to the naked eye. Its green forests, its impressive mountains, its rushing rivers, its white and many-coloured cities, its wide-stretching shores, fringed with the foam of an azure sea, lay before the astonished eyes of our visitors. When within a few miles of the city, Governor Laldemir, accompanied by Captains Praer and Notothebeck, advanced to meet us in a large magnetic yacht bearing the flag of Leone. The Governor hastened to inform us that in view of our victory the city of Kioram had declared its allegiance to the cause of Leone, and invited myself and the officers of the fleet, as well as our distinguished allies from the outer world, to a banquet in the fortress of Kioram. This news gave me great satisfaction, as the city would be a splendid base of military operations. The officers and seamen of the Mercury and Aurora Borealis created quite as great a sensation in the streets of Kioram as did the victorious sailors of the Polar King. Landing on terra firma, Governor Laldemir took the opportunity of showing our guests the beauty of his Bokokids, who formed a guard of honour to the fortress, where we were all royally received. The two captains, together with their officers and sailors, were astonished at the multitude of strange objects shown them. Captain Adams would not remain satisfied until he was accoutred with a dynamo and a pair of magnet wings, with which all the sailors and soldiers of Atvatbar were supplied as part of their uniform. He was shown how the battery of metals gave motion to the dynamo, which in turn acted on the steel levers connected with the ribs of the wings. Although the worthy captain was of considerable weight, yet his astonishment at being able to skim through the air like a swallow was great. No sooner did he touch the button than all his preconceived notions of locomotion were destroyed, and he gasped with fear at his prodigious motion. The two facts of unfailing movement of wings and exceptional buoyancy of body soon made him a fearless rider of the wind. He alighted on the earth with the greatest enthusiasm over the success of his experiment. The magnet spear was another surprise for our guests. Sir John Forbes was astonished at my being able to fight the Fletchermings so long, armed as they were by so potent a weapon of death. He would certainly recommend its use in the British Army and Navy on his return to England. Our allies were surprised at everything they saw, particularly at the rapid movements of the Fletchermings or wing jackets of the Royal Navy. They thought it an extraordinary thing the sailors should fly by magnet wings. After the banquet, Captain Adams, who was a fine type of American seaman, bold, alert and courageous, gave us an account of how both the United States and England came to send ships to the interior world. It appeared that the story of Boats and Dunbar, first published in the New York papers, that the Polar King had sailed down the Polar Gulf en route to an interior world, had created a tremendous sensation on the outer sphere, and all civilised nations immediately fitted out vessels of discovery to follow up the Polar King and make discoveries for the benefit of their respective governments. So far as anyone knew, only two vessels had succeeded in entering the interior sphere. The recital of Captain Adams was frequently interrupted by Sir John Forbes, the British captain, a courageous officer who possessed all the stately dignity of his race. He stated that since the discovery of America by Columbus, no other event had awakened such unbounded enthusiasm as the discovery of a polar gulf and an interior world. I am most of all interested at present, said I, in the story of how Dunbar reached civilization again after parting with us. I forgive you, Dunbar, I continued addressing him, for your mutinous conduct, and now let us hear the story of your adventures in the polar sea. Admiral, said Dunbar, 
had we known the terrible hardships we would have to endure in making our way home, chiefly on foot and at the same time burdened with the boat, we would never have left the ship. But you must thank me for the presence of the two ships that are here today, and for the fame you already enjoy in the outer world. It is something tremendous, said Captain Adams. How did your geographers receive news of the interior world? I inquired of Sir John Forbes. I need not say that the English geographers, in common with the entire nation, were greatly excited at the news. The Royal Geographical Society have already made you an honorary member, and it was actually proposed at one of the meetings that the government should proclaim a special holiday as a day of rejoicing for so great a discovery. This would certainly have been done, but for the fact that the story rested entirely on the testimony of two sailors, and that any public rejoicing should be postponed until the story of the sailors would be verified by a special expedition sent from England. Of course, many people think that Dunbar's story is a fable or a hallucination that he himself believes in. On the other hand, hundreds of professional and amateur astronomers and geographers are proving by mathematics that the Earth must be a hollow sphere, and the story of the open poles an entirely physical possibility. The people of the United States, said Captain Adams, are almost unanimous in their belief that the interior world is a veritable reality, and it only requires a return of my ship to convince everyone that Dunbar's story falls very short of the glorious reality. There is no man more famous today than Lexington White, Admiral of Atvatbar, said Sir John Forbes. I thank you, gentlemen, for your kind words, said I, and now for Dunbar's story. I think, said Captain Adams, that if I were to read you the article containing Dunbar's story, written by a special commissioner of the New York Western Hemisphere, who was first to interview Dunbar at Sitka, on learning of his arrival there, it would perhaps be the best narration of his perilous adventures. As the captain spoke, he drew a copy of the Western Hemisphere from his pocket. By all means, I replied, let us hear what the press said about Dunbar and his adventures. Thereupon, Captain Adams read the New York Western Hemisphere's account of Dunbar's adventures as follows. An astounding discovery! The North Pole found to be an enormous cavern leading to a subterranean world. The Earth proves to be a hollow shell 1,000 miles in thickness, lit by an interior sun. Oceans and continents, islands and cities, spread upon the roof of the interior sphere. Boatswain Dunbar and Seaman Henderson of the Polar King, having deserted the ship as she was entering Plutasia, have arrived at Sitka, Alaska, in a desperate condition, and have been interviewed by a Western Hemisphere commissioner. They say Lexington White, commander of the Polar King, is at present sailing underneath Canada on an interior sea. Tremendous possibilities for science and commerce. The fabled realms of Pluto no longer a myth. Gold, gold, beyond the dreams of madness. The story of the discovery of Plutasia and the Polar Gulf, as told by the two shipwrecked survivors of the mutineers of the Polar King, now at Sitka, Alaska, to the Western Hemisphere, will form an epoch in the history of the world. The renown of Columbus and Magellan is overshadowed by the glory of Lexington White, a citizen of the United States, who fitted out a ship for polar discovery, and, taking the command himself, has unravelled the mystery of the North Pole, discovered the Polar Gulf and the interior world. Having penetrated the polar gulf at about 300 miles, and having discovered the interior sun, a fear seized on a number of the sailors, among whom were Boatswain Dunbar and his companion Henderson, who are the only survivors of twelve men who left the polar king in an open boat to return home again, and to whose safe arrival in Sitka the world is indebted for news of the important discoveries that have been made. Dunbar and Henderson arrived in Sitka in a very forlorn condition, almost starved to death and utterly exhausted with their terrible journey homeward. They seem to forget largely the incidents of the journey outward in the Polar King, but have a very clear recollection of their own individual experiences in returning to civilization again. 
Dunbar, with his eleven associates and the Eskimo docks, were no sooner cut adrift from the Polar King than they began to realise their terrible position. Born on the breast of the immense tidal wave that vibrated up and down the polar cavern, they were tossed helplessly to and fro, now flung almost out of its mouth and again sucked back into its midnight recesses. They floated for days in the gigantic tunnel of water that threatened to collapse any moment and overwhelm them. They would fain have returned to the ship, but the breeze blowing out of the cavern wafted them far from their comrades, and they therefore bent all their energies to the task of getting home again. The light of the polar summer that lit the mouth of the gulf was their guide that led them back to the old familiar world. Happily for the adventurers, the direction of the wind continued favourable to their voyage. They made about a hundred miles a day, and in five days reached the edge of the outer ocean. Here again the grandeur of the scene appalled them. Let the reader imagine a little boat carrying twelve souls out of that monstrous cavern five hundred miles in diameter. Think of fifteen hundred miles of ocean forming the mouth of the world that shone in the Arctic sunlight like molten silver surrounding an abyss of darkness. Dunbar and his companions had no sooner emerged from the gulf and seen once more the light of the sun, our own sun, than they wept for joy. But again, when they thought of the terrible barrier of ice they had to cross again, they began to wish they had remained with the polar king. Thus man fluctuates between this or that impulse as he is moved. "'I say, Captain,' said Walker, one of the men, don't you think it was about as safe to go back and find the ship as to run the chance of being frozen to death on the ice? Well, said Dunbar, when we left the ship, everyone knew it was for good. Our shipmates have chosen their course as we chose ours, and it's too late to go back now. As likely as not, she may have struck a rock and has gone to the bottom by this time. As the boat cleared the cavern, the sea fell down before them, until at noonday the sun itself was visible, a joyful proof that they had at last gained the normal surface of the earth again. When three days out of the gulf, the weather grew suddenly colder, and the sky became obscured with clouds, completely hiding the sun from sight. A furious snowstorm overtook the voyagers, who, benumbed with cold, wished they were only back again under the hurricane deck of the Polar King. Fortunately, the wind blew steadily toward the Arctic Circle, bringing them nearer home. But such was the anxiety and suffering caused by insufficient protection from the inclement climate that they cared not whether they drifted, so long as they could keep alive. By help of a little oil stove, they boiled their coffee under a sail, which, spread horizontally above them, in some measure kept the snow from burying them alive. The storm spent its fury in twenty-four hours, and when the air grew clear again, they were saluted with the sight of that enormous ridge of ice through which the Polar King had found passage a month before. The ice was heaped up with the purest snow in places twenty feet in depth. Thousands of icy peaks and pinnacles as far as the eye could reach pierced the sky. Under other conditions, the sight would have been sublime, but to men frozen and famished with insufficient food, it was a scene of terror. The icy range was flanked by an ice foot varying from 30 to 60 miles in width and from 4 to 50 feet above sea level. Here was the problem that confronted Dunbar. He had to travel over at least 30 miles of icy splinters over an ice foot whose surface was broken to every possible contortion of crystallization. There were mounds, hummocks, caverns, crevasses, ridges and gulfs of the hardest and oldest ice. Then, when this barrier was crossed, there was the icy backbone of the whole system, 500 to 1,000 feet in height to be crossed, as there was no lane or opening to be discovered through so formidable a range of ice mountains. Even if he succeeded in crossing the same, there would certainly be an ice foot of perhaps greater dimensions than the one before him to cross, and that might prove to be only a valley of ice leading to other and still more accessible cliffs to be surmounted. "'This is no place to die in,' said Dunbar. "'And so, boys, we've got to hustle if ever we expect to get home.' "'Aye, aye, sir,' said his companions. 
but when they reached the ice they found that having remained in a cramped position for a month in the boat had incapacitated them for walking. It was also found that Walker's feet and those of four other sailors had been frostbitten, and that they were totally unable to be of any service to themselves or the others. The outlook was mournful in the extreme. The only thing that cheered them was the constant sunlight, and even that consolation would depart in another month, and if in the meantime they did not get away from the ice, hunger and the awful desolation of a polar winter would terminate their existence. There was no chance of starting on their journey until they got accustomed to the use of their limbs, and so they built a hut of blocks of ice, which were solidly frozen together by a few buckets full of sea water thrown over them. The dogs were glad to get on the ice again, and scampered about, totally oblivious of the fact that the supply of pork was getting very low, and unless they got some fresh meat very soon they would be obliged to feed on each other. They remained a fortnight in their arctic abode, exercising themselves by cutting a passage in the ice. During this time four of the sailors died. Finally the remainder, packing everything into the boat, yoked the dogs there too, and started in anything but hopeful spirits on their arduous journey. It was found that Walker had to be carried along, but he did not long continue a burden to his associates, for on the fourth day of the march he died, and was buried in the snow. It was a toilsome journey. Almost every foot of the way required to be hewn out of the ice as hard as adamant. The dogs suffered greatly from insufficient food and tireless exertion. Several died from complete exhaustion, and were greedily devoured by their fellows. After desperate exertions, Dunbar and his company, now reduced to seven souls, gained the crest of the ice ridge and had the satisfaction of seeing open water not twenty miles away. It took some time to discover the best route for descent, but at last they reached the level of the ice foot beyond and struck for open sea. A fortunate capture of several seals reinforced their almost exhausted supply of provisions. Dunbar cared nothing about latitude or longitude or scientific information in such a desperate fight for life. It was a joyful moment when he and his companions launched their boat safe into the sea again after the incredible toil of dragging it forty miles across the splintered ice peaks and the terrible ice foot north and south of the Paleocristic mountains. Dunbar hoisted his sail, abandoning the few dogs who yet remained alive, and with his unhappy companions steered for the Bering Strait, first making for the coast of Alaska that faces the desolation of the Arctic seas. It would be impossible to describe the horrors of that lonely voyage, the terrible struggle with five hundred miles of ice floes, with snowstorms that piled the snow high upon the voyagers, and the ferocious cold proved too much for five of the seven sailors, and one by one the poor fellows died and were thrown overboard. Only two men, Dunbar and a sailor named Henderson, emerged from the Arctic Sea, arriving in six months from the time they left the ship in Sitka, Alaska. End of chapter 44